0: Welcome to Eurodollar University. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I'm joined by with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, we're going to be talking about an emotional issue, and it's about inflation. It's about inflation and price increases, and the two are not the same. And people may say, well, that's a distinction without a difference, but you wrote an article just the other day where you make the the impassioned point that there is a big difference. We're gonna go over it. We're gonna go over, yes, there are price increases, but there isn't inflation. It's important. I know people may be thinking, how can that be? It's important that we identify the nuance in this. And the article I want everyone to go to will be found at the Alhambra Investments blog post, blog site, October 13th, 2021 is when it was posted. And the title is, a perfect time to review what is and what is not inflation, and why it matters so much. Jeff, I've highlighted the first two paragraphs here that I want to read out. So basically, it's very important what you say in the beginning. Tell us what what's, what's happening.
1: You no, know, I think you hit the nail right on the head, Emil, when you said that, you know, People get the idea that if prices go up, how is that not inflation? What is the difference and why? If there is a difference, is it just a technical thing? There's one of those technicalities that we you know, maybe economists throw out there once in a while to throw everybody off the scent. I mean, it kind of sounds fishy when you say prices are going up, but it's not inflation. Well, wait a you minute. Know, prices go up. That is inflation. But as it turns out, in fact, uh There's a massive, tremendous difference, not in just what it is, but what it means. And that's really the two parts we want to go over today is that what is inflation and what is not inflation, even in an environment where consumer prices are going up? And what does it mean that if consumer prices are going up and it's not inflation? What are the two differences here? And they're actually very, very, very uh, crucial distinctions.
0: Let me quote you. By clarifying the situation, demonstrating over and over how there is no money printing, Therefore, there can't be inflation. We aren't saying that prices aren't rising. They obviously are. But by dispassionately analyzing the situation, given its clear lack of any monetary basis, what we are doing is pointing out what instead must be responsible for driving costs of living higher. Regular viewers know what we mean by there is no money printing. New viewers may be saying, well, the central banks are printing and the federal government is kind of printing, maybe, sort of. But as this whole show is all about, it's the commercial private banking system that far outweighs that printing, that money creation over there. And that's the system that's not really contributing. We're going to go over some data first in your article and then give examples of what happened in the 1970s the great inflation and show some graphs. Yeah,
1: and then we're going to talk about later in the show about why that isn't money printing and what is money printing and what should be money printing. So we're going to cover all our bases here, or at least try to cover all our bases here to make sure that we say, OK, there's a distinction here. When we say the word inflation, we mean something specific, and that's money, overflowing money, too, too much money chasing too few goods. You probably heard that before. And if there isn't the money, the overflowing monetary condition, it can't really be inflation. I know, Amelia, you like the term monetary inflation. I think it's redundant. But I mean, maybe that helps the audience uh, understand what we're trying to say. We don't see the money printing. Therefore, we don't see monetary inflation. But yet we're not saying consumer prices aren't going up because obviously they are. They have gone up. and They've gone up a lot, the most in more than a decade. So something is happening to consumer prices we're telling you it's not the money
0: part. We'll get into that later. So what is going on and why does it matter? September CPI in the United States released on the 13th of October, 5.4% year over year increase. That's very, very high. That's the headline, everything included, food, energy costs. What about just core inflation, right? If we remove the food and energy, maybe that shows us the underlying less volatile day-to-day stuff that's not food and energy, that's also up very high 4% year over year. That's in line with what we've seen between May and August for both of those measures. What about the month over month figures? And that's where we're starting to see that the
1: inflation acceleration is now deceleration. And the monthly changes, uh, especially in the core rate and especially in services prices, they've, they've come right back down and their, their inflation, or at least the, the rate of consumer price increases, are about the same as what they were before we ever started all this mess. So in other words, as you said last time, I think it was a meal or a couple of episodes ago, you called them the camel humps, which I thought was a pretty elegant term for consumer prices. And we saw it again. We saw this last year and then we saw it earlier this year. Last year it was in uh, June and July of 2020. We saw the, a rapid but very short-lived increase in consumer prices. Then it went away, it proved to be transitory. And then it started all over again earlier this year in March and April. And ever since April, May, June, July, now August and September, We've seen the rate of change slow and slow and slow and slow. So that the last couple of months, it's really back to where we were before. So it, month over month change, I mean, year over year changes are still pretty large because we're comparing to low price, low price indices last year. But month over month, we're seeing that the other side of the second camel hump from 20, uh, the 2021 camel hump, because inflation pressures are receding, not accelerating.
0: That's right. Now I'm showing the graph right now from your article. This one is seasonally adjusted, less food and energy. So core, we see the two camel humps. And a little bit lower is rent minus services or services minus rent. Help me, Jeff. What is it? Service
1: sector minus rent. So it's not the goods economy that's been propped up by all the frenzy and durable goods spending and things like that. And you take out the rent component because that tends to be non-economic at times as well. So you're looking at the underlying cost of pretty much everything else in the consumer price bucket, which is, again, that's one of people's most common complaints. Well, yeah, if you take away food and gasoline, so what? I mean, we have to live and we have to you know, put gasoline in our cars. But that's really, it speaks to the definition of inflation, what inflation really is, which is that the prices of not just one or two things go up, it's the price of everything that goes up. So yes, we see the we see gasoline prices go up because of oil prices. We see food prices go up at, at times, especially nowadays, food prices have accelerated over the over this year in particular. But what we don't see is the rest of everything going up too. And that's really where you get into the distinction between inflation versus what other things might be going on in the consumer price bucket. Inflation is everything and it's not just that everything goes up so yes the core rate goes up and energy prices go up but then they keep going up they go up and up and up and won't ever let up that's what really inflation looks like
0: we're going to talk about energy because we're going to compare energy prices today and how they're accelerating compared to how energy prices were accelerating during the great inflation but before we go there just a quick diversion that last graph we were looking at was all about services and you make the point in your article you want to look at services because we had a goods boom and you see in the data that that good, goods boom is fading and what is coming back is the services portion of the economy which was always lousy do i have that correct
1: yeah it was i think that's really probably the best way to put it it was it would never it was always lousy. So again, we're you know inflation is where everything goes, everything works. And what we're seeing, or what we've already seen of or this year of consumer prices, is that it was very narrowly construed. It was not broad based, and it doesn't look like it will be sustained because there, again, there is the money printing behind it.
0: Okay, now I'm going to pull up another chart that shows energy prices as per the CPI measurement. And what are these energy prices? Energy motor fuel, seasonally motor fuel. adjusted. And we're going to go back 13 and a half years, and we're going to see prices are up recently.
1: Yeah, so let's compare and contrast what an actual monetary inflationary period looks like with what we have today. And let's start with gasoline. I mean, motor fuel prices are... One of the few things that people really notice and pay attention to because you're kind of forced to. Every time you go to the gasoline pump and you stick the, the, the nozzle in, you look at the rate that you're paying and, and you, uh, you look away in disgust because it's, you know, what is it? It's over three dollars a gallon in most places around the country, if not more expensive in, in other places. So you realize that, hey, gasoline prices have come up from where they used to be. But what you don't what you don't probably uh, appreciate is that, yes, gasoline prices are much higher compared to last year. But compared to the last decade or so they're they're pretty much in line in fact, the last time the Federal Reserve got to tapering their q e back in two thousand thirteen from then to now, gasoline prices are actually lower than they were you know what was it eight years ago, and they're lower than they were twelve years ago, so yeah, gasoline prices are up year over year, and that's a painful. Cost increase that consumers have to absorb, but it's not inflation. It's just the vagaries of how per consumer prices behave, you know, volatilely in this uh, overall disinflationary environment. So it's disinflationary because overall consumer prices, and just motor fuel here, and we'll see again that it's not just motor fuel prices, but gasoline prices over the long run haven't really done all that much. They've been they've been up and they've been down, but really they haven't gone anywhere, and that's you know that's a sign that. Something else other than inflation going on and setting the consumer price agenda.
0: Now this is episode 129, Eurodollar University, but in episode 126, Macro Piece Theater, where I play the role of Alistair Cook and I introduce a story and read around macroeconomics, I read one of your pieces, a very important one, from last week where you explained to the audience how there's been this divergence. And each of the four euro dollar shortages that we've had between metal prices and energy prices in oil. And what we've seen is that metal prices turn down first, and then energy seems to be a lagging indicator. And in this article, we're going to be comparing present day to the 1970s, but there's a quick sidebar I want to make is you bring to our attention, hey, you know, energy prices, if you look at where the dollar is going in recent data, energy prices may be turning down lower Soon enough. So, for the audience that want to learn more about that, that's in episode 126. I'm going to show the 1970s. Jeff, is there anything you wanted to add to my last point?
1: Yeah, the, you know, even though we're saying that maybe global growth is slowing, we've already seen commodity prices turn lower. That sort of the metals and industrial commodities turn lower. Yet, oil prices continue to go up. And what we what we said in that article is that that's not abnormal. In fact, that happens time and time again. Oil is usually one of the last commodities to turn lower. So, you know, oil prices can go up even if the
0: quote-unquote inflationary environment has already changed to something else. So we were looking at the last 13 and a half years, a contemporary picture, our era. A lot of people are comparing it to the 1970s. Now this graph that we're showing is the 1970s, whereas that graph was clearly bounded. This is a trend. And Jeff, you make a key point here. We see two huge spikes, but the part in between was a lot too, right? That huge spikes kind of ameliorate and kind of hide the fact that prices were rising very high, very quickly, year after year for a long period in between there. Yeah, the
1: great inflation was relentless, right? And that's really, that's what inflation is. It doesn't stop. It doesn't take a break. It doesn't pause. It, it continues to go on and on. And even in oil prices, which you can see those two big spikes that didn't have to do with monetary inflation. Those were supply shocks. You know, even outside of those two huge spikes, in between them was a period of, again, unrelenting rapid inflation in, in motor motor fuel prices, as well as all other prices. And that's really the difference. And you, can, I think, I hope you in the, the chart you're showing, Emil, kind of Understates the impression, too, because you don't realize how big of a difference it is when you start the 70s from when you end the 70s. Motor fuel prices were up, you know, an enormous amount over that time. And again, in between, because of those supply shocks that made it seem inflation was condensed into those two episodes. No, it was constant. Even when there wasn't supply shocks, gasoline and oil prices continued to rise throughout the period. And they never took a month off. They never took a day off. They continued to go up and up and up so that by the time you got to the end of the decade, oil prices and gasoline prices were nothing like what well, you had started the decade with. And that's one of the reasons, one of the key reasons why
0: people don't really have fond memories of the 1970s. What, the bell bottoms, the lava lamps, the music, the pharmaceuticals, Jeff? I don't know why people don't have a fond memory of it.
1: All right, well. Yeah, why were people paying attention to everything else except oh, yeah. the, uh, the economics of the age, yeah, right? Yeah, the
0: war, dreadful. All right, let me quote you. Everything goes up core included and it goes up year after year. No breaks, no pauses, no reversals nowhere to hide. That's like a movie poster, Jeff. Great. It's awesome. It's very exciting. A horror movie. That's exactly it, Emil. What we're doing here is by, by
1: making the distinction of monetary inflation, the inflation monster is monetary. And so if we don't have the monetary component, which again, we'll get to later, then we're not talking about the same monster. It may be a different monster, but it's not as monstrous if there's not the monetary component behind it. Yes, the great inflation was a horrible period, which uh you know not didn't just affect the American consumer. It was it was a, a global problem, but it was it was it was in many ways a disaster, not quite on the level of the Great Depression, but not really that far from it either. And understanding why and what happened in the 1970s is important because we're trying to figure out whether or not we're repeating that or if we're not repeating that, what exactly is it that's going on right now? And you can see the huge difference between again, unrelenting uh, consumer price pressure that was everywhere. It wasn't just gasoline. It wasn't just food. It was everything. So even the core rate, this is why we scrutinize the core rate so much, because it's not that we're ignoring food or energy prices. What we're trying to see is if these consumer price trends are getting into everything. And so if it affects the core rate in the same way as it does gasoline or fuel, whatever's going on, then we're starting to think, OK, there's something unifying. There's something something really inflationary here, because even the core rate is going up relentlessly month after month, year after year, year
0: at a quick, heavy, painful, uh, disastrous pace. So for the audio audience that are listening to the podcast, we just showed a chart from comparing the core rate from 1970, as well as the core rate from 2009 and the 1971 blow. What? it's just not even on the same planet, right? But you say, all right, well, maybe the post-2009 era was different. Maybe central bankers didn't know what they were doing, but now they do, Jeff Snyder. And they've got the government that's helping them, the federal government, the central government. And so let's zoom in on the 2020 period and compare the 2020 period to the early 1970s. And Jeff, tell us how... The early night, this is the best possible comparison because we're looking at the greatest reopening economic acceleration possibly in human history and about face compared to the 1970s early, which were actually in recession. So, a very ugly economic period versus full on face forward, no helmet, no net, no pants. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to start. Um, you're exactly look, Yeah. 2008, 2009, a lot of people said money printing, government spending was going to lead to the 1970s. Fast forward to you know, 12 years, didn't happen. Now everybody said, OK, we got that wrong. But this time, 2020, 2021, this time will be the great inflation because epic amounts of QE, you know, helicopters that are, you know, into the trillions. How could this not lead to something like the great inflation? And again, I don't think people really realize what the great inflation actually looked like because, I mean, it's 50 years ago, so how would many people probably weren't born. And even those of us who are old enough to maybe slightly remember don't remember all that much of it anyway. But if you put it on a chart and say, okay, great inflation 2.0 began in May of 2020 when the economy was reopened the first time and the first government helicopters were dropped in the United States. If we mark that point and compare it to, you know, 1970, what you'll see is, uh, no, not really. In 19, and as you said, Emil, 1970, from December 1969 until November 1970, the economy was in the. US economy was in pretty sharp recession during that year. So in 1970s, I'm, we're showing you on the chart here, that was an economy in recession <laughs> and yet consumer prices, core consumer prices, which meant the prices of everything were going up at a rapid pace even during that recession. Now compare that to the last 17 months or so, and what you see is that outside of that couple months in earlier this year when Uncle Sam's double helicopters were combining and supply shocks were at their most, it still didn't even come up to the same level as, not even close to the same level, as a deep recession during an actual inflationary period. So even with the, the most, you know, the biggest, hugest, gigantic government stimulus possible, the most severe supply bottleneck since the 1970s, and yet consumer prices outside of a couple months they never even got close to something like the great infla the the early part of the great inflation we're still not there and then we're seeing what what we shouldn't see in an inflationary period which are pauses and breaks and bends because the great inflation as i said before was relentless month after month after month after month at, you know almost a straight 45 degree angle in core consumer prices which again inflation it's everything that goes up and it goes up and never stops going up so what we see over the last 17 months in consumer prices Yes, it got very sharp. Consumer prices did rise. Core consumer prices did rise relatively rapidly, but in a very short term, condensed, narrow burst. That's not the same thing as inflation.
0: Yes. So if we look at that graph, we see a surge. And I guess some people might extrapolate that that surge is going to continue. But let us go back to the beginning of the show where we were saying- Maybe
1: so, but we've already seen that it started to decline. That's what we talked about before, that the month over month changes that- You know the camel humps. The second part of the camel hump is already pretty well defined, and you can already see the bend in the core consumer prices and services prices, which suggests no, that they're already we've already seen the break. It's we're we're, in fact by looking at it this way, we're actually isolating the cause here. You can actually see what the cause must have been, and it wasn't money printing. You know, it's not you know something incredible or some some uh, awesome mystery. It was the government dropped a bunch of money on the economy. And it responded for a short period of time, but that's not inflation. Yes, consumer prices went up, but for that reason, which means, you know, if it's not not money behind it, if not money printing and it's not really inflation, then we wouldn't expect that it would continue. It's not going to be like the great inflation. It's going to have its short run impacts, which are there. You can see them prices went up, but then they don't go up at the same rate after it's all over and set or all over and done
0: with which is where we are now. Any final thoughts, Jeff? In the in the article, you say the Federal Reserve is right, but we shouldn't blame them for this. We should blame them for any other things. Do you want to touch on that?
1: Yeah, we're not, you know, some people say we're fed shields here. <laughs> they accuse me of they being a be, shield for the Federal Reserve because it sounds like I'm letting them off the hook when it's Far from, You know, it's exactly the opposite. What, I, what we're trying to do here by saying this is not inflation, this is not money printing, we're trying to get people say you're trying to direct people's attention to what must be going on. You know, if it's not money printing, if it's not really inflation, then there are other things that we need to focus on. One of those that what the cause of the consumer price rise was the government and supply bottlenecks and those things, those temporary things that already faded. The other part of that is the money printing. Since there is no money printing, that has serious ramifications. Those ramifications aren't inflationary, though. They're deflationary. So we're not letting the Fed off the hook. We're putting the Fed on the right hook. We're not saying the Fed should be blamed for money printing because there wasn't money printing. Instead, we're saying the Fed should be blamed because they won't admit to the world they don't print money and that we've we've been living with a monetary shortage for a very long time. And that has created the lack of inflation, the lack of economic growth and left not just the United States, but in the entire global economy in a horrible position where we haven't had legitimate economic growth for more than a decade, which has caused enormous consequences. Just none of those consequences are inflationary. And so nothing has changed in that regard. So we don't see the money printing. We don't see the consumer price increases as inflation. We see them as something else. Yes, they did go up earlier this year, but we're already seeing the other side of that which is consistent with the idea that there was no money printing, it's something else, and therefore we have other problems
0: to worry about. In part two of this episode, we're going to look at what commercial banks are doing in the United States, private banks, not public central banks, because they're the ones that create the vast amount of money that makes the global economy run. And we're gonna review the Z1 financial accounts, and we're gonna see where they're putting their money. And that's going to show and re, what, what's the word, reconfirm, re-underline the point we've made in this video right now is that inflation is going to be very unlikely because of what banks are doing. Inflation. We just discussed it in part one of this episode, saying that we're seeing price increases, but not monetary inflation. Don't kill me, Jeff Snyder, head of global research. For Alhambra Partners, I know you say monetary inflation is redundant. That I guess that's just how I roll, redundancy. We're going to point out to the audience what we do need to see. In fact, that's the title of your article. Until this changes, forget inflation. Banks bought epic amounts of safe liquid assets in H121. You can find that at Alhambra Investments. It was posted on the 9th of October. All right, Jeff. Well, spoiler Go ahead and tell us, what is this that needs to change?
1: Yeah, I think I didn't leave enough out of the title, so we can just go home and wrap it up, right? I mean, that's pretty much everything. Banks bought safe liquid assets, which is the exact opposite of what we would expect to find during an inflationary period because of what they're not doing instead of safe and liquid assets. And that's that's really the point. Uh, again, safe liquid assets, more like the 1930s than the 1970s. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the 1970s, which is the 1930s, when banks back in the Great Depression, for obvious reasons, couldn't get enough of only the safest, most liquid assets at the expense of every other kind of asset they could possibly take onto their balance sheets. And again, in the 1970s, it was the opposite. They disgorged. Safe and liquid didn't want those things in favor of anything that they could get in the nominal economy because nominal returns were so epically awesome because of an inflationary environment. So, banking system are they doing safe and liquid or are they doing the other risky, not safe and liquid? And what we've seen over the last, and this is not just 2021. Right, Emil, this is, this is going back to 2007, actually, when the first crisis start, started to show up. Banks have been safe, liquid, safe, liquid, safe, liquid, safe, liquid, no matter what the Federal Reserve does with quantitative easing. In fact, the other side of quantitative easing, which is bank reserves, guess what that is? It's not money printing. It's another form of safe and liquid asset that banks can hold on their balance sheet at the expense of doing risky activities in the financial economy.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're watching episode 129 where we're discussing present day. In episode 128, I read out Jeff's essay from last week from Real Clear Markets where he compares what we're gonna be talking about right now to the Great Depression. So I encourage you to listen to that one. Jeff, let me give you some numbers right now. Uh For the first three months of the year, depository institutions added $52.2 billion worth of very safe liquid securities, treasuries, right, Jeff? Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And that seems like a lot. Guess what we saw in Q2? So Q1, 52.2. Q2, 93.4 billion of more safe assets, just treasuries. But it's even more, Jeff. They also added an incredible amount of Agency, government sponsored enterprises and federal agency debt, right? They added, how much did they add? 353.9 billion. That is a total of half a trillion, if I do my math right now, of safe assets. Yeah. So you're buying. And this was, remember, first half of this year, right, Emil? This
1: was reflation. This was inflation. This was everything is awesome, period. This is supposed to have been the six months where the last thing you would want are safe and liquid assets. You're supposed to be selling safe and liquid assets. Remember, Jamie Dimon said in December of 2020, I wouldn't touch treasuries for the 10-foot pole. Well, every other banking entity did. In fact, they couldn't get enough of them. The numbers that you quoted, the 50 billion in the first quarter and the 90 billion in the second quarter. Well, the 50 billion would have been one of the largest quarterly increases in the Z1 history uh, pre-2020, and the $90 billion in the second quarter was the second largest quarterly increase in history. The only larger one was the second quarter of 2020, which was the aftermath of the great second global financial crisis. So why the hell are banks buying only safe and liquid assets in these kinds of numbers during the first half of 2021, which is supposed to have been, everybody said, you know, historic bond sell-off, interest rates have nowhere to go but up, yet banks are buying safe and liquid in amounts that we haven't seen outside of crisis era. As
0: and- Shocking as that is, more shocking is the lending that the banks did or more precisely did not do, Jeff. That's how money creation works in the modern economy. That's where the vast amount of money comes from. How much lending did they do in this last quarter? Well, actually, they didn't. Lending declined by a further $25.5 billion. Was that just Q2 or for the first whole first half?
1: That's the first half. So banks, as you said, they're adding half a trillion in safe liquid assets and lending declines by 25 billion, which isn't a huge decline, but that's not the that's a huge decline. If those those two roles have should have been reversed. Yes. We should be seeing maybe not half a trillion in lending, but something, you know, hundreds of billions certainly overall net. And we should have seen uh, safe liquid assets, treasury holdings, agency debt go down rather than fly upward at at such incredible paces. And yes, some of that had to do with the fact that the federal government issued a lot of debt during this period, because the federal government has been issuing a lot of debt for quite a long period of time. But that that doesn't change the fact that banks aren't lending. They only want to own safe liquid assets, no matter how many safe liquid assets are sold to the public, they're willing to buy them at almost any price. That's the other part of this. Uh, safe. The prices of safe and liquid assets are through the roof. So the banking system is willing to pay an enormous premium on safe and liquid assets, which should get you asking to yourself, why are banks willing to pay an enormous premium on safe and liquid assets if everything is supposed to be inflation, bond sell-off, bond route, all these other things? I think you already know the answer to this question, which is that no, interest rates don't have no anywhere to go but up. They can actually go lower because we've seen this time and again. Maybe there isn't the inflationary environment, everybody says. And in fact, these are the very institutions that do the money that create the inflation if the inflation was going to get created by the money that didn't get created, which really means without lending, you don't have money flowing throughout the vast majority of the economy. You don't have the money behind what would be inflation. So the banking system, which makes the money, which would make inflation, is doing the opposite so they're pretty confident in buying safe and liquid assets since they're not doing the money creation to begin with.
0: I'm going to show two graphs right now that really help uh, bring this message home. They go back decades. Uh, the first one here is what? Let me see here. The first one is total assets of banks. And the there's that uh, background, the area graph in the back that shows growth of total assets. Fine. That's not what I want to look at. I want to look at the rate of change, which is the dotted line. And so we see for, God, from 1953 to 2007, right, we could imagine there's a ten, bottom 10% quarterly change and a 90%, you know, limit. So a band, if we can imagine where 80% of all results take place, we can see this band in our mind. And then the key is when we get to after 2008, even the most ferocious increases I would imagine barely reached that bottom ten percent of what we had experienced for the last three generations. So three generations of bank asset growth at such rates, and then in the fourth generation, the best results barely reach across that bottom ten percent of results of what we experienced in the in the previous three generations. I'm going to put
1: so lack of lending. Yes. Lack of lending. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's another part we need to point out too is that. You know, we think bank lending, there's more bank lending now than there was in 2008. Bank lending has increased over the last 12 years, but it has done so, as what you were just pointing out, at a much diminished rate of change. Even though that rate of change is positive, it's no longer the same rate of change as it was in the, in the entire post-war history. It certainly past the 1950s forward up until 2007. And that is a contraction in a nonlinear world a lower rate of change, even though if it's positive, it's less than the rate of change that we quote unquote need to continue with global growth and and global uh, progress, then that is monetary contraction, that is lending contraction, that is too little money growth and lending uh, credit growth in the real economy. And remember, lending and loans is the rest of the real economy that we don't see. Because we already got, you know, bonds that cover the the visible stuff, Wall Street, big companies, they, you know, bond market covers debt for people who can can pay Wall Street to float bond issues. But what about small and medium sized businesses that depend on other forms of credit and money intermediation? And that's where we're really getting into lending. That's how money gets out to the other, the, the, the hidden sectors of the economy. You don't see that the bond market certainly doesn't cover. We need lending. We need loans to spread money, monetary and credit resources evenly or at least efficiently through the entire economic base and not just pool everything into the the bond market or liquid asset markets, liquid asset credit markets that is too narrow to support economic growth and innovation and adoption and all the positive aspects that we need from money and credit and lending and intermediation for the economy to continue on a legitimate growth path. So lack of lending really means lack of money and credit into the hidden spaces in the economy that we don't see. We don't have a posted interest rate for mom and pop's lending rate. We don't see those kinds of illiquidity and liquidity constraints that are affecting negatively, negatively affecting these vast portions of the global economy. And that's why money or lack of money, lack of lending becomes lack of economic growth.
0: Now, Jeff, I'm going to show the next graph. And here we're going to be focusing on the proportions of safe assets and total assets. And there are two years that I want you to bring to everyone's attention, 1955 and 1962. Can, do you remember what those two years represent?
1: Yeah. The the banking system as of the second quarter of twenty at the end of the second quarter of twenty twenty one, in terms of safe and liquid assets, which we're defining in this case as US Treasuries and Agency debt, the, the bank, the entire depository banking system of the inside the United States. We're not talking about outside the United States just yet, just inside the United States, the, the, the domestic depository banking system holds the greatest proportion of those safe and liquid assets since 1962. So we've got to go back almost 60 years for bank balance sheets to be this heavily reliant or this heavily stuffed with treasuries and agency debt. And a lot of treasuries, especially over the last couple of years, and you have to ask why, why going back, you know, 60 years are banks building up this safe and liquid portfolios? And yet the flip side of that is the next chart you want to show, which is, I believe, bank lending, right?
0: Yes, Well, I don't have it handy here, but oh, okay, I'm pulling it up. Go, go, Jeff. Nineteen fifty five then.
1: So if banks are holding treasuries and agency debt as well as bank reserves from the Fed, remember, that's another form of safe liquid asset. So they're holding all of these things in lieu of lending, which is what we just got finished saying. And so bank portfolios in both the first and second quarter of this year fell below 50 percent lending for the first time since the 50s. Banks haven't had this little lending on their in, in their asset side since, you know, the euro dollar first started, which boggles my mind. But again, it speaks to the very clear behavioral preferences for how banks are constructing their balance sheet and conducting their activities. They are not lending. They are not doing risky activities. They're sticking to the safe liquid for whatever reason. And, you know, just describing what these assets are. Gives you the answer behind the, you know, give their answer for the reasons why banks would be behaving in this way. They prefer safe, liquid assets at any price rather than doing risky, illiquid type of lending or anything similar to that because of the liquidity, safety perceptions, the environment that they're operating in.
0: You can reach Jeff Snyder at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP on Twitter. You can reach me at Emil Kalinowski and you can reach Rank Dawson, the third at rank Dawson, who is rank Dawson? He's someone who messaged me and said, Emil, Jeff, hi guys, what does the neck next to loans mean in the graph? And I think he meant sec. I'm gonna pull it up again, Jeff, because I too said, what the what What does this stand for? I think sec, what is it Jeff? Tell us this dashed line, oh neck, yes, loans neck, the red dashed line, what is that
1: yeah, neck <laughs> it's a it's a classification in the z1 loan in the z1 uh, statistics which is one thing that you see in, in a lot of these uh, aggregated data series which is not elsewhere classified which simply means there's loans we don't we don't really know how to classify them or what bucket they're not mortgages they're not commercial loans we don't really know what the hell they are but they're loans so they they go on the balance sheet as loans not elsewhere classified fantastic and it's just Thank you. You, you see this a lot in the data because we don't have a perfect view of what banks do. They kind of give us a snapshot every now and again, but even then they don't want to give us all their information. And so there's a lot of miscellaneous. There's a lot of other there's a lot of no- not elsewhere classified throughout the data. So it's a loan or it's not a loan, it's something, but it ha- you know we don't really exactly have all the details behind it. and it's it's not a small and it's not a trivial portion
0: of lending assets either. Now again, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 129 and 128. We'll be talking, I'll be reading Jeff's work about the Great Depression comparing to this. But in this article that we're discussing is a fantastic graph that really brings it home. You see the same symptom, the same behavior. So pull open the article and then you'll be able to see that graph. Jeff. Earlier, you mentioned we're going to be talking about other countries. We're always talking about the United States and people that, you know, from other countries, they say, well, why don't you go take your United States bank loans and stuff it? Because in Japan, in Europe, we're loaning out the wazoo. Is that true? Let's talk about Japan first.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> Does anybody actually say that? <laughs> I hope
0: it's, not because it's not true and it hasn't, been,
1: it hasn't been true for a long time. It's poetic license. In fact, the United States, the, the domestic depository institution in the United States and lending their lending is actually the best global case out there. You look at Europe and you look at Japan and it's much, much worse. Uh, and again, J- uh, Japan, the bank lending broke back in 1990 and has never recovered. And then you go to Europe Europe, like the United States and the rest of the developed world outside of Japan, they broke down in August of 2007, and it's never been the same since. It doesn't matter what QEs are done in any jurisdiction, how many bank reserves are printed or created, makes no difference. Lending will not happen. Banks refuse to lend, preferring only safe and liquid investments. So again, for the very fact that they're doing, they're behaving this way, which mimics bank behavior from the 1930s, not the 1970s, you can kind of get a sense of what we're, true, what we're doing here. If we're thinking that the current environment is actually inflationary, it needs to have the monetary component behind it in order to be actually inflationary, which is broad-based. The price of everything goes up and it goes up for a long, long period of time. It's relentless, it never stops, it never takes a break. That's because the money printing just keeps coming and coming and coming. So if there isn't money printing, and what we're telling you already From the best case scenario, which is domestic bank lending, the money isn't there. Then what's going on this year and what's going to go on next year can't be, I hate this term, Emil. You're going to make me use it, aren't you? It can't be monetary inflation because there is no money, there's no lending. The banks are telling you it's not there. Without that money and lending, there is no inflation. Yes, consumer prices did rise, as we just talked about in the previous segment, but that wasn't because of money printing or money at all, that was due to other factors. So by by the lending data alone, again, the domestic depository institutions are the best lending case across the developed world right now, and it's not there at all. So no money, no actual inflation, consumer prices are going up for other reasons,
0: temporary transitory reasons. We're going to discuss a little bit more of this in part three of this episode. But before we go, Jeff, I was thinking that sometimes on these episodes, we show individual bank balance sheet sizes. I think we've done that a couple of times where I show the size of Goldman Sachs since 1997 all the way to present, uh, JP Morgan, banks in Europe and so on, Switzerland, the, uh, Britain. And what we see is an exponential increase up until 2007, until 2008, and thereafter sideways down, a little bit up. But you know what we saw in 2020, another 2021, is an increase. So you would think, wow, this is good news, right? They're expanding their balance sheets. That's why this episode is so important. We're seeing them expand, yeah, but it's into the safest assets and that's not helpful for the rest of the economy.
1: Yeah, it's a small, it's a small expansion in the grand scheme of things, but the wrong kind. We don't want them to be buying U.S. treasuries and agency debt. We want them to be lending. We want them to be undertaking uh, risky activities. And what we really want is risky activities to go along with meaningful balance sheet expansion, not just forced balance sheet expansion because
0: of safe liquid assets. Jeff, do you know what the 10-year anniversary gift is? I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go to my local Hallmark store and get it to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of MF Global imploding and you know, scaring the global economy even more. Uh, let's talk about that in part three. MF Global, what does the MF stand for? I don't know, maybe Jeff Snyder does. He's the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. My name is Emil Kalinowski, this is Zero Dollar University. We're going over an a article that Jeff posted at the Alhambra Investments blog. It was posted on the 11th of October. And the title was The Great Eurodollar Famine, The Pendulum of Money Creation Combined with Intermediation. That's gonna be the key from this episode, Intermediation. But let me start out with a little quote here. The name MF Global doesn't mean very much these days, but for a time in late 2011, it came to represent outright fear. Some were even declaring it the next Lehman while the bank, quote unquote, did eventually fail and the implications of it came to be systemic, those overly melodramatic descriptions actually served to downplay the event in public imagination. Interesting. I don't get it though, Jeff. What does it mean?
1: (laughs) Well, you say it's the next Lehman, right? That's what a lot of people are calling it because that's, you know, we live in a clickbait society and that's what everybody wanted to do. So you think if it's the next Lehman, then what follows it is going to be another crash, So it failed, but there was no crash. So therefore, people were left with the impression that, oh, it was a big nothing because it didn't live up to the hype. Well, maybe it didn't live up to the public hype, but in private or in in the shadows where we live and where you and I live in this euro dollar world, it had enormous consequences because it represented essentially the final nail in the old way of doing the money business. And the old way was really the new way, which was. Shadow stuff, off balance sheet SPVs, SIVs, uh, you know these these modern techniques to make balance sheets the most most efficient they can possibly be, which allowed for a lot of rapid money creation. Therefore, you know global growth, global trade, as well as doing too much of those things in terms of asset bubbles all around the world. You know credit fueled asset bubbles, money fueled asset bubbles, whatever you want to call them. That's really what we're talking about here. We talked about just in you know in the previous segment about. Depository institutions don't want to lend. They don't want to do risky activities. There's not enough liquidity in the environment to do those things. The story of MF Global is really sort of the last chapter in why that is. What really happened in 2008? What really failed? It wasn't, you know, money. It was a monetary system where the function of money creation and intermediation had been intertwined for various reasons that we've talked about in the past. I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it in the future. Those two functions intertwined meant disaster. But when the lack of money creation started in 2017 or 2007, it didn't restore the intermediation function. And we can talk about what those mean as, as, we, as we go forward. Definitely. That's the
0: key of this episode. Money creation versus intermediation, how they went wrong, when they went wrong. That's very important. So Jeff, don't don't let me forget that. Before we get to that, uh, let's talk a little bit about MF Global. As you said, they were doing business the old way. The party was over, but nobody told MF Global or they just didn't want the party to be over.
1: Arrogance. It's pure arrogance. Fair enough.
0: And so they were doing the way things the way they were done up until 2008. And that included things like special purpose vehicles, SIVs. I don't remember what SIV stands for. And repo to maturity, which is what you draw our attention to, Jeff. Do you remember what SIV stood for? And then what is the repo to maturity? And eventually the thing that brought uh, MF Global down? SIV is
1: special investment vehicle, which is a special kind of SPV, which is a special purpose vehicle, which pre-crisis way of doing banking and money.
0: Off essentially,
1: how do we make assets so efficient? And so how do we manipulate things so much that we can essentially create extensions of bank balance sheets to make them bigger without making it seem like we've made bank balance sheets bigger? How do we hide all this stuff so that we can have we can do a hell of a lot more things. And it really comes down to accounting. It comes down to derivatives and it comes down to balance sheet manipulation techniques that really don't have time to get into here, unfortunately, because we spent a lot of time on those things. Regulatory capital relief, credit default swaps, all that stuff. But it, the idea here is that, look, you take a transaction that if you accounted for in the old way of doing things would take up a lot of space on your balance sheet. You want to be able to shrink that down to nothing so that you can do more things, right? The more things you can do, the more profit you can make, because it's essentially it's a form of leverage. The more leverage you can fill in your balance sheet, the more profitable you can become. And one of those techniques was called repo to maturity. If you think the repo market blows your mind, wait till you get to repo to maturity, which was complete taking things to a next level. A repo is essentially a collateralized loan, right? It's, it's an, overla- an overnight loan that goes on and on and on. So rather than to have a loan on your balance sheet, even though it's a safe liquid, lo- you know, liquid arrangement where it's just a safe repo using collateral, let's instead of doing that, let's book the entire cash flow, the anticipated cash flows of that repo transaction from now until it expires. Let's book all those cash flows up front. We'll call it a sale and then we'll just book it as a sale on our balance sheet. And then that repo to maturity, the securities that you've completely capitalized up front, they just kind of go off into the netherland. You have to, you still have to fund them in the repo market, though, but it's not on your balance sheet. It doesn't affect your income statement unless something bad happens because you've already booked the profit from that trade, even though the cash flows haven't happened yet. That's essentially repo maturity. As weird as it might sound, that's really kind of standard practice during the euro dollar era. You do all these gain on sale accounting techniques that allow you to stuff as much onto your balance sheet as you possibly can, with the caveat being that, hey, this asset that you no longer really take responsibility for, you're still on the hook for it in the repo market because you're funding it there. And if, they, if the value of that security starts to fall, as we know in the repo market, repo counterparties will demand more collateral to when they adjust their haircuts for falling assets. So that was really what happened to MF Global in early 20, 2009 and 2010. They decided we're going to buy a bunch of these troubled Greek and Italian and, and Portuguese uh, sovereign bonds because we believe the European Central Bank will stand behind them. And so they're trading at low values with the ECB support. Obviously, we're going to make a ton of cash on these trades because it's the ECB. Nobody's ever going to fight the ECB and those value, the value of those bonds are going to go up over time. So we can make a killing. and We don't have to fund this on our balance sheet. We'll do a repo to maturity trade with Greek debt. And then when the Greek bonds do come due and they're paid off in full, we'll have already booked that profit ahead of time before it ever even happens. And it's all funded in the repo market. And of course, you can see where this started to go wrong in 2011, when the value of those Greek and Italian and and Irish and Portuguese and Spanish bonds started to decline, regardless of the ECB's explicit support by then, which caused this ripple effect in the repo market where haircuts had to be adjusted. And all of a sudden, MF Global, which was expecting nothing but profit from this trade, started to get a call from JP Morgan, their tri-party repo dealer, saying, we need more collateral. This Greek bond that you posted, we don't care if it's not on your balance sheet, this Greek bond you posted in the repo market as collateral, we're not taking it the same value we did before. So pay up with some good collateral or you're out of the tripartite repo business. And that's what happened in October of 2011.
0: And they couldn't secure enough good collateral, right? Maybe if they had started from the beginning with U.S. treasuries, they would be okay, right? But they... Why should they but do then, that? Yeah, it's too costly to have your own collateral on your balance
1: sheet. It's better to borrow it or to be able to borrow uh, the collateral from somebody else. And that's what MF Global did in le- leading up to its collapse. The same thing that Lehman Brothers did. We talked about this before in a previous episode. When we went through the Lehman Brothers emails, which showed that, hey, when the going gets tough, MF Global, like Lehman Brothers, transferred customer accounts to London subsidiaries so that they can rehypothecate and repledge customer assets as this collateral call came due from JP Morgan but that's a finite arrangement too eventually you run out of customer assets that you can transfer to london to rehypothecate and then then what do you do you're already on the hook for your customer assets you're on the hook for your own assets and you still need more collateral that you don't have. And it all came to a head in late October of 2011 in a way that people were still scratching their heads like, what the hell is going on here? Even though, as I just said, this is exactly what happened in 2007 and 2008 with Lehman Brothers as well as Bear Stearns and others. And so MF Global simply said, where the rest of the banking system realized the party was over in 2008, after 2008, MF Global thought, well, there's a couple of niches that we can still keep it going. We can still keep this repo to maturity stuff going because we think now that central banks are coming. Coming in that has made everything safe in a way that it wasn't beforehand. Central banks have learned their lesson. They're now doing QEs, they're now doing explicit supports for various markets, market of last resort activities. So, how could this possibly fail,
0: right? It was the second euro dollar wean, and this one scared everyone straight, right? We had uh Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, American International Group, and now MF Global. And as you often say, 2011 was the final nail in the euro dollar coffin. After this, people said, banks said, that's just too risky. We've had, we've seen enough examples to stop doing things the way they were done before.
1: Oh. As much as we loved it, as much as we love stuffing as much assets on our balance sheet as we possibly could, doing all these ridiculous counting, accounting, insane lending, all that crap. They love doing that stuff. They realized that, yeah, you know what? We thought there was no downside before 2007. We realized we were wrong. There actually is a downside. And the downside is the worst kind of downside, which is if you are shareholder of Bear Stearns, you didn't look at Bear Stearns and your failure positively. You looked at it as, oh, I just got wiped out. Management just got wiped out. If you were Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers wasn't just a systemic shock for anybody operating Lehman Brothers. They just got wiped out. MF Global. MF Global was, hey, we're still going to do things the old way, this off-balance sheet way, as long as we can. Because we think central banks have fixed everything. Oh, we were wrong. Central banks can't fix it. And oh, by the way, the old way of doing things ended up wiping us out. So it was an abject lesson, the last abject lesson the system needed to learn, which was the old way of doing things high leverage, high capacities, high efficiency on the balance sheet. We can't do them anymore because the risks are too great. And so that was why it was a systemic rupture. 2008 wasn't about subprime mortgages, and it wasn't a one off temporary event. It was the systemic rupture in the very nature of way money, does money creation and intermediation functions intertwine and interacted in the global marketplace and the global economy? Let's
0: talk about that. So there was exponential money creation and somehow intermediation got, as you say, intertwined with it. I'm going to quote you. Intermediation is supposed to be about matching the wider, real pool of savings to worthwhile economic projects that have a real productive impact on the real economy. MF Global's repo to maturity transaction cannot be fairly classified as real intermediation since the firm knowingly advanced credit to an economically unfeasible obligor with the explanation that the price would never reflect that reality. This crystallizes, I believe, just how far the financial system has moved away from real intermediation and reflects the biggest part of the real problems in the real economy money is no longer productive in economic terms and has not been for decades wow tell us more so if
1: you have the ability to create money out of thin air and you're also responsibility for redistributing that money throughout the economy which is what intermediation really is it's the redistribution of monetary resources to places where it belongs right there's demand and supply for money supply for money you know, that's that off-balance sheet efficient leverage stuff we just talked about. Let's talk about redistribution and intermediation. It's supposed to be where you match demand with supply. And that means that you look at certain projects and say, well, this one's worth lending to and this one's not. This one's worth lending to because we think it has a high good, it has a very good productive use and it has a good chance of paying off in the future. This one is not a productive use of money because it's, it's insane. You don't lend to this kind of people who they have no ability, no business plan, no, no reasonable way to pay it off. But when you have the ability to create money and it's unrestricted and then that becomes perverted under you know, certain conditions such as the great quote unquote moderation, then the money creation function overwhelms intermediation because then you're just creating money for anything. Any purpose. You just lend to anything and everyone because you have the ability to create money. And as you have the as we go through, uh, you know, something like recency bias where nothing bad happens, then you think that, oh, nothing bad will happen. So we can just continue to create money. We can continue to stuff all these assets onto balance sheets, off balance sheets, do gain on sale accounting, repo to maturity, all these other things. We can keep doing them because there doesn't seem to be a downside to it. And that had, that simply overwhelmed the intermediation function because there's so much money to be created, you stop caring about who you're lending money to. You don't care if the project is economically viable. You don't care if the price reflects the lack of economic viability. You've got all this money that you can create, so you just throw it everywhere that's possible. You just saturate the entire world with credit because you have the ability to do so, and you haven't been stung by the losses of the doubt the potential downside of doing it and that's really what the 1990s and middle 2000s became was the money creation function got so bad and so inefficient or so efficient and so leveraged that it overwhelmed intermediation to the point that we were giving subprime mortgages out like you know by the hundreds of billions which in any type of legitimate intermediating environment that never would have happened so that was money creation overwhelming intermediation and you think well If we stop the money creation, we start introducing brutal discipline, you know, failure of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and AIG, and eventually MF Global, that will mean banks have to go back to being more intermediaries and less money creators. But that was the pendulum swung in the exact opposite direction. Instead, what happened was as the money creation function got destroyed, MF Global being the last example, one of the last examples of it of the downside of doing it. We didn't go back to an intermediating environment. We went back into an environment where banks said we were giving out way too many loans before the crisis. Now we're not going to give out any loans. We're going to go only safe and liquid. So the lack of money creation actually put the uh, intermediation function into the exact opposite spin where we no longer get enough anything. So we went from way too much money creation, not enough intermediation to no money creation and still not enough intermediation, but for the opposite reasons. And that's really, again, going back to our inflation thesis here, there isn't the money creation because of this. And therefore, if there isn't money creation, because it's not lending, it's not redistributing across the wide base of the economy, it's not going to be inflation.
0: Just we're going to go over some graphs to end the show to put some visual context exactly to what you said. But before we do, I just wanted to tell the audience in case they haven't heard that uh, in 2014, the Bank of England gave it their best estimate of how much money creation is done by the private side versus the public side. Because new listeners may be saying, well, you know, maybe you're exaggerating, Jeff. What is it? 60-40, 70-30, you know, Federal Reserve versus commercial banks. And the uh, Bank of England came up with a number in the 90s, like 93 or 97% of money creation in that they're able to track and identify in Britain, just Britain, is by private banks. So if the private system is hobbled, what does it matter what the the 3 or 5% is doing? You got to fix the private bank magic money tree. You got to water it. You got to fix it. All right, I'm gonna sh- and as we just stated, I don't agree with their seven percent or three or five percent
1: either. I think that's giving themselves way too much credit. Yes. It really I, is commercial banks are nothing. Yeah. And if the last dozen years of QEs hasn't hasn't Demonstrably, conclusively, unambiguously shown that to be the case, then you'll never change people's mind because they don't want their mind to be changed. The evidence is overwhelming. Money creation is a private function, not a government function. And and when money creation function and the intermediation function are so impaired, it absolutely does not matter what governments do. And that's really kind of the overriding point here. As we've this entire episode that we've gone through, you know, thinking about inflation from the perspective of Uncle Sam's helicopters. Yeah, those have a temporary impact, but why don't they have a bigger, more lasting impact? And this is the reason why. The monetary system is impaired. And the reason the monetary system is impaired is because it relied upon banks doing really stupid things. Now, we don't want banks to do stupid things, and it's good that we don't do stupid things in the one in the one sense, but the the cost of them not doing stupid things is we don't have the money and credit creation to let the economy grow because nobody stopped to think about Well, if the money creation intermediation functions got uh, impaired so badly in 2008, what happens after that? The QE and the mainstream consensus was that the world would just go back to normal, maybe a more responsible normal than, you know, no subprimes and no ninja loans. But that was never really the case because the global economy before 2007 had come to depend upon all those risky balance sheet leverage techniques that were really stupid and insane in the long run. But without those things, we don't have the money in the banking system behind the economy. So it's always going to be stuck in this disinflationary, deflationary rut, which has not changed this year. In fact, as we stated in the last segment, banks are going crazy for safe and liquid assets, and they're not lending this year. They're not lending
0: in the same way they haven't lent over the last dozen years. Okay, the graphs we're going to look at right now are all understated. As shocking as they are, they are understated as you tell everyone in the article Jeff but let's do a lightning round so this graph right now really helps put in context money creation versus what the federal government is doing isn't that right
1: yeah essentially the abs and finance company issuers were the off balance sheet stuff so all those loans that get stuffed into these off balance sheet uh, entities you can see the parabolic rise up until you know almost 6 trillion of loans up until 2007 and then just utter collapse And the collapse in the way that they've never been replaced. You can see the federal government has tried. Those are mostly student loans, but still, the federal government has tried to offset this collapse in lending. And as big as the federal government's lending activities were, it's nothing compared to not just the the absolute collapse in in these off-balance sheet lending capacities, but also remember, we needed that that graph to continue going up. So we have lost loans as well as loans that never happened. And that's such an incomprehensibly large gap.
0: We're going to look at that gap in a second. But before we do, we're going to look at one other graph. This one helps put into context the proportions. And again, what we discussed in the previous episode, safety and security.
1: Yeah, those are, those are debt securities. So these are liquid assets. These are not loans. But you can see even even among the loans that the, the depository institution uh, institutions like to hold, they obviously prefer the federal government's assets, and this is just treasury securities because they're
0: safe and liquid. So it doesn't matter how much the federal government issues; they want them. Now the next three graphs we're going to see are this is the same data. It's like a layered cake, and you're going to remove some of the layers. Tell us, Jeff. What are these layers that you're removing? And at the end of this third graph, what is it that we're left over with? And of course, the key, the key is the, the exponential growth, the growth that's missing that we never even account for.
1: Yeah, we need to stick to the dashed line. We need to we need to go up at the same rate, right? That's that's really the the nonlinear contraction. Even though lending and debt securities those have been rising at, since 2008. They have not been rising at nearly the same rate, which is contraction. That's de- that's def- deflationary money. What you're seeing here in the green, the green layers are all the loans and lending type of activities from the banking system as well as non-banks, uh, even the federal government. And then the blues are debt securities. So those are you know bonds and and uh, syndicated loans, uh, leverage loans, things like that in the real economy. Even if we include uh, the fact that there's less lending and more debt securities, you can see how we no longer go we no longer keep anywhere close to that dashed line. In fact, we're way, way way off it and getting further behind as we go. But here now we start to account for just the private institutions and what they're doing. We're We're going to remove the government's influence in issuing treasuries. And you can see how much further behind we are before you get to, I think, the final graph, which is strictly, yeah, strictly just private institutions. And it's even worse than you think, because total debt from just the private side of the the depository domestic institutions is barely more than it was in 2008. So even though it's going up a little bit over the last several years, it's really not going up at all.
0: Jeff, that's it from me. Any final concluding summarizing thoughts regarding this whole episode, inflation, creation of money that you wanted to share with the audience? Just quite simply, inflation is monetary.
1: Monetary inflation, that's your term. Let's move, <laughs> that's fine. So if we have inflation, we need the money. We don't have inflation, there can't be the money. So that's what we're really saying. The, the monetary system, the way it actually works was impaired a dozen years ago and, and before. In the, in the way it was impaired, we just went over and it's never been solved or fixed or changed. In fact, MF Global was sort of the last lesson learned that said, this kind of way of doing things is it's not going to come back and if it's not going to come back and there's nothing to take its place and QE does not take its place let me tell you then there isn't the money for inflation so whatever happened this year consumer prices went up and they went up in broad-based fashion we don't expect them to continue because it's not monetary it's not real inflation because there is no money behind it there can't be money behind it
0: all right thank you very much Jeff I will talk to you again next week
1: All right, take care, Emil.